This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak one-on-one with all kinds of amazing creators in the world of entrepreneurship. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business and even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co, that's O-W-N-R.co, and use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. If you haven't subscribed to E2, please kindly do so. It helps listeners discover us and certainly helps us keep doing what we're doing. So thank you so much for doing that. Today is my conversation with Paul Jarrett. Paul is a subscription box champion, a Midwest entrepreneur, and co-founder and CEO of Bulu Box and Bulu Group. After a decade working on ad campaigns for Lowe's and Nike, Paul co-founded and launched Bulu Box with his wife Stephanie in 2012. In this episode where we covered a ton, Paul shares the unfiltered truth about his experiences raising capital, including how he landed about $1.5 million in 47 days, scaling to $500,000 in monthly recurring revenue in just 18 months, self-awareness as a leader and CEO, and how to leverage Amazon in a world where Amazon is eating retail alive. So without delay, please enjoy this very amazing conversation with Paul Jarrett. Let's start with the story of how you came up with the idea for Bulu Box. And for a guy that probably had, like, you're an entrepreneur like me, you probably got a million ideas a minute. What was it about this idea that stuck for you? Oh, man. Well, first of all, like, thank you for having me on the show. This is awesome. And it's crazy to, like, listen to a podcast for a long time and then be able to be on it. So thank you very much. I'm, like, honored and flattered and all of that stuff. So <laughs> Thanks, I got to get that out of the way in the beginning in a good way. So it's funny because... The reality is, is that my, my wife and I were running a half marathon and there were a bunch of vitamin supplement, healthy snack samples at the end of it. We tried stuff out, a lot of stuff we liked, a lot of stuff we didn't. And I just thought it is crazy that nobody asked us for our email. Nobody asked us for anything. And we're just collecting all this free stuff. And Brian, like, you know, like a kid from Nebraska in San Francisco and they're giving away free shoes and gallons of milk. I'm going nuts grabbing everything. And, you know, we went home and we walked home and we're just talking about like, that's insane that they're just giving away this stuff and they want nothing in return. Wouldn't that be interesting if, you know, we would just get an email back or a buck or my phone number or, you know, a tall, goofy white male uh, that runs funny, which is me with a giant big nose and he's really hairy and sweaty. I'm like, if they wrote that down, right? Um, Because then at least they have marketing information. And I actually went home that night and I just couldn't shake that idea. And, you know, this is the part where I'm like, I can kind of turn it into a much glossier, like shiny, you know, aha moment. But the reality is, is that I basically went to Google and searched for like 
you know, vitamin supplement samples. Like, how does this work? I stumbled onto Birchbox and I was like, this is really interesting, the subscription box idea. I actually just assumed that a vitamin and supplement subscription box, which is what Blue Box is, existed. And I hit the search button for like vitamin supplement. I think everybody was calling them sample boxes at the time, mm-hmm. not subscription boxes. And nothing came up. And I remember like, I was like, oh, I misspelled vitamin. Like that was my first thought. <laughs> like, wait, how do you spell vitamin? Oh no, wait, did I misspell supplement? Is supplement two P's, one P? Wait, I know this, right? Doesn't Google autocorrect? Wait. And I like kind of did it a few different times. And it was that moment where I'm like, well, wait, this doesn't exist. And that was, I mean, that was pretty much it. It wasn't like a target market. It wasn't like a huge headache. It wasn't anything more than I, like just the natural part of me knew that this thing should exist because I do, I did have a background with some like health and I had lost a hundred pounds and I just knew from the industry that vitamins, supplements, and a lot of healthy snacks actually follow the makeup industry. So I always say, you know, if vitamin E is really big in makeup or hair or shampoo, then actually vitamins and supplements and snacks start talking about vitamin E, like, which is weird, but it's the reality of it. Hmm. So just searching for like, wait, there's all this beauty stuff going on. There are these really cool ideas, but nothing in vitamin and supplement and healthy snacks. Like it became this thing where it wasn't even a question if I was, you know, if we should do it, it was like, how do we do it? Like it was, it was no longer, I always say, you know, our company is scaling right now. And and I say, I think to myself, well, how do you know when you're scaling? It's when you quit asking yourself, like, are we growing? And you're actually like the questions going on in your head are like, how do we get racking? How do we get a forklift? Like, you're not even like that question is, isn't even circulating in your head anymore. And that's what happened. I searched for it. It didn't exist. And it was like, we have to sprint. You mentioned the scaling up and the stats are pretty incredible. Like what you had shared with me earlier about you guys reaching $500,000 in monthly recurring revenue in 18 months. That's fast. I mean, when you think about how quickly you guys ramped up. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty clear that you had this idea nailed. Was it, yeah. a, was it one thing that was working or was it a combination of things? Like how did you get to that level so quickly? Complete and I, and I mean this when I say it, uh, complete ignorance, like what is it like? Um, ignorance is bliss, right? That's what it was. I had my wife, who's our co-founder, who is for the record, the brains of the operation, truly, truly, truly. We came from a decade in marketing and advertising. We worked in New York City at big ad agencies like BBDO and Gray Worldwide. We worked in San Francisco and we had this, you know, like, we were used to pitching and doing things and ad campaigns doing well. We were like, we were, it sounds arrogant, but like we were used to winning. And so when we put together this kind of like box and pitch deck and everything for this, you know, this subscription box for vitamins and supplements, we approached it very similar to like a, uh, you know, just like a pitch. Right. And I don't, think we ever had the question in our head like this won't work because we didn't know any better so we just put a plan together we executed it it went up and to the right and it's like we got there and everybody was shocked that we got there and then we were shocked looking at everybody else and it was like we missed something when the part that we missed was like you know only one out of 20 startups actually do that you know and then when you get there you better have a plan 
to raise capital and keep scaling. And that's, I think, where we really missed the boat. And, and I accept full responsibility for that. Like, I knew how to raise six million bucks. I did not know how to raise a hundred million. And I did not know who to talk to. And I didn't even know the questions to ask. You know, it's kind of this mentality of like, ooh, once we get there, well, you know, that's it, right? Like somebody will acquire us. And, you know, like that whole like, I'll, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Well, mm-hmm. that bridge got there and like we didn't have a bridge. We had no plan. We had nothing. And we thought that we did. But yeah, and that's, you know, frankly, when like everything started falling apart. What is the difference between raising your first million or your first five million and raising a hundred million? I would say for me, you know, starting something, uh, I just actually, uh, yeah, I'm pausing because I'm like, wow, I just came out of this conversation with somebody. But you have to be honest with yourself and with your team and with everything. And, and honestly, the difference was like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know who to talk to. And the difference is now I know because I fell on my face that when we start getting on that trajectory, I need to be the person that goes and talks to people that have raised $100 million and be around them and, and ask questions and read the materials and study and put together plans and get them shot down and, you know, like do all of those things and always just get comfortable with not being comfortable. And I always tell people like, fall in love with the process, not the end. And I think that's what the mistake that we made raising capital was like, we just fell in love with this idea of getting acquired. And that was really dangerous. And what we should have really did and what I think I've learned to do is fall in love with always getting better. And I think it's a very, very rare person, like less than 1% of the population of entrepreneurs can be the same person that starts something, that scales something, and that optimizes something. And, you know, I had a 10-year corporate record and I was an optimizer and I was good at it, but I hated going to work. We started a company and that felt really natural to me. And this scaling thing, this is foreign to me. This is weird. This is hard. I have a lot of people around me. I have a lot of people that are way smarter than I am. I think, you know, statistically, it's a very rare breed that can do, you know, create grow, optimize. And that very rare breed is brutally honest with themselves and the people around them about what they're good and what they're bad at. And they're able to kind of like step down when needed or step up. Being honest with yourself is was the big difference. Okay. So I do want to get back to the story about when you didn't know how to raise capital and what that experience was like <laughs> in San Francisco. We're going to get back there. But first, before I forget, this point that you raise about a leader or an entrepreneur or a founder being super self-aware and then understanding where their strengths are, what they're good at, and what they're bad at. The question I want to ask is, if you're a founder and you've got a growing business and it's time for you to look inside yourself to understand where your strengths lie and what you should be doing to push the company forward and that might mm-hmm. be to step out of certain aspects of the business. How would you suggest that that entrepreneur go about that process to better understand themselves? I know what I have to do, and I know what I have to do. I'm 36 years old. Our company is scaling incredibly fast. We hired 
165 people out at her warehouse yesterday. That's terrifying to me. I know, don't even think about it because it's fine. And, you know, we have the people in place to do that, right? So, like, I'm just, like, I know how I tick today, how my mind works. There's three things that I'm doing that work for me. The first thing is I sat down with my wife and uh, we put together a, it's actually right out of EOS. It's called like a vision traction organizer. It's a EOS worldwide, but it's basically like a two, like a two page plan for my wife and I as a couple and as co-founders, you know, where we want to be 10 years down the road, where we want to be five to one down to quarterly, what milestones. And then as people, what define my core values, what define hers, what do we want our family to be? And kind of like starting from like, you know, on your deathbed where you're going to hope that you did. Okay. Now let's work that back to like a workable plan. It's almost like a business plan for life. Right. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was really normal. And the more I talk about it, everybody thinks it's crazy. And we think it's crazy that people spend so much time on work and so little time on themselves and their marriage, which is the most important thing. Like that needs more work arguably than anything else. Right. Or than most attention. Right. So, and I carry that everywhere with me. It's on my phone. It's a printed version. And when I do struggle with kind of where to go or what to do, like I will reference that as well as like our business plan. And like, I'll think about the decisions that I make now, how those will add up over time. So number one, like I wrote out a plan of kind of the perfect, you know, what I, how I want my story to end. And I'm just kind of guessing out what I need to do now to make that story end the way that I want. So I don't, I don't think a lot of people do that and just try it and it'll be wrong, but just carry it around and it forces you to think about it. And, you know, you'll, you'll probably get something out of that. The second thing that I've done, and this is, you know, very, very, simple to do, but I find six people that I want to be like, and I force myself to be around them. But here's the catch. Cause that's like a pretty basic, like, you know, like our Harvard business review says you become the average of the six people you hang out with. Right. Like, <laughs> yes, you're like and, yeah, and, that's and every basic. podcast and every self-help book. Yep. But here's what I do. I am ruthless. And this is weird saying this out loud because people are going to listen and go, oh shit, he did that to me. I am ruthless about leveling up. So, you know, if, uh, if I want to be a billionaire, but I got to be a millionaire first, like I better start hanging out with millionaires. Okay. Well, if I, if, and when, or maybe I am, I don't know <laughs> a millionaire. Okay. Well, I want to be billionaires. I got to start deleting out the people out of my groups and like leveling up. It's funny. People love, I always use the term level up. I don't know like where that came from or whatever, but I use it a lot and people are like, Oh, that's great. Like level up. And I'm like, man, if they really knew what level up means, like it basically means like I'm going to level up as a human and you know, I, I'm going to go find those six people to be around. And that's hard because, you know, I love my family to death right? My cousins and my uncles and my brothers and sisters and all that stuff. But like, you know, you got to think, am I going to have lunch with my brother or am I going to take the opportunity to have lunch with this billionaire guy, right? Or girl, this billionaire, I'm going to go with woman, human, maybe that's the best one. You know, what should I do? Well, I really want to have lunch with my brother because I love him and I miss him and, and whatever, but I need to have lunch with this billionaire human because they are going to help me get to where I want to go. You mentioned core values earlier on in, in checking your phone yeah. to remind you about the value yeah. of a good marriage and a healthy marriage and family mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And now mm-hmm. you're talking about the opposite side of the corner. So it sort of feels that way. This idea yeah. of leveling up 
to reach that next plateau, so to speak. How do you balance that? I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to tell people that the people that can't handle that truth of like, sorry, I'm going to go do lunch with this person because I think I can learn more, you know, then I probably don't want to be around those people. They don't probably don't want to be around me. It's almost like a big decision tree and you just have the tools of yes or no. And you only kind of get that way. And it kind of becomes second nature if you're constantly referring to the plan that you have. And it took me probably two years to get to this point of just trying. And I still don't like where it's at, but it's getting there. It's exponentially better than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last, the third thing that I've just started doing recently is, and I took this straight from Warren Buffett. He said, um, somebody asked him a question about, you know, what he's doing now to learn or whatever. And, and he said something along the lines, this is like a YouTube video, right? He said something along the lines of, I wish I would have read more audio biographies of people that I wanted to be like, and I kind of interacted with people outside of my space. And he went on and on and on about that. But I think, you know, my insight to that was like, you know, pay attention to things completely outside of your orbit because like you, they might apply to you. Thank you, Warren Buffett. I get what you're saying now. I didn't get it when I saw the YouTube video and I've been reading these biographies and documentaries about people, but like, once I brought the person in from a different place, like that's what I, okay, click. Okay. How many more of these meetings can I do with successful people in other areas and get this? So it was, it was cool. It was like a, it was like a moment for me. So yeah, it was cool. It was really cool. No, there's, there's so much good stuff in what you're saying. And I mean, I've had similar experiences with business coaches and mentors. I, I've had a business coach who is more accountability focused, but I've also had a business coach that's much more spiritual and yeah. really doesn't add value necessarily on, you know, moving KPIs, but he adds value uh, spiritually or on a holistic level in my life that makes me see things completely different. The idea of having mentors from a distance, let's say, like this idea of reading people's autobiographies and then pulling lessons from them, I think is super valuable. Okay, so I want to go back to the capital raising stuff, just because I know you've got a lot of good stories in that regard. When you first, I know you're originally from Nebraska, you're back there now, we will get to that story, because that's a great one. But when you initially went down to San Francisco, and you raised your first million bucks, and you said you really had no idea kind of what the lay of the land was, or even how to raise funds. What was that like for you? Man, it's funny because like the whole raising capital thing was like, like, you know, the first time that we did it, it was so easy and I can feel the anger through the podcast right now. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was like simple, like I can, yeah. And so like, um, I, and again, like I could, I could give you the story that you want to hear, but like it was, it was a breeze. I think I'm pretty sure like we've tallied the days and it was like, 47 days total from idea to receiving capital. And again, I just go back to like, we didn't know any better, (laughs) you know, like we thought that was long. Right. But the second time that we raised capital, it was like one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. The first round of capital we had, you know, really we, first thing you gotta have is like all the check boxes, right? Like market team product, you know, there's just that, that kind of like list of nine things. I say like, uh, people are like, wait, what are you talking about? And I say, go read Guy Kawasaki's The Art of Start and just do the slides or 
just Google Guy Kawasaki's the only nine slides you'll ever need. So like first things first, you got to like check those boxes and it has to be amazing. After time, you come to learn 86% of people base their decisions off emotions. And so technically in a pitch and raising capital, you have to check all the nine boxes and have your slides right and all that stuff has to be tight. The second thing that is arguably more important, but doesn't matter if you can't get the kind of check boxes right, is that you need to have something that will emotionally grip people and make them want to be part of whatever you're doing. Now, I think people make the mistake and they think story. And I'm, I'm saying it doesn't have to be a story. It might be a moment with that person or whatever. It's something that, you know, 86% of people in a room when you're pitching will base your decision off of like, you just did something that moved them and they want more of that. What happened was we were kind of mentally preparing and figuring out how to go pitch in San Francisco and where we lived in Silicon Valley. And so we're kind of like reading and understanding. And at that time, I kind of thought like a pitch was I would sit in the room and kind of like talk about the idea. I didn't realize it was like stand up and, you know, whatever. And I knew I needed some slides. I just didn't like, I didn't get it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what to look up online. I was just kind of like trial and error. And I'm just a lot of conversations with everybody. My wife and I, I mean, we've probably never worked so hard on something in our lives. And I think in about a two week period, you know, we were getting just like one to three hours of sleep on and off. And we legitimately were working. There were sticky notes all over our apartment. We were getting boxes, buying them. We were doing everything at once. And we were having fun. I mean, it was like a crazy amount of fun and we we're high fiving and we we're, it was almost like we were laughing at how stupid the whole situation was. And like, what if they give us a million? Ha 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 ha. And that was like our running joke, but it was also like we knew whatever we presented had to be just on point. And so having a deadline of something, we got everything together and we drove back to Nebraska and our whole working mindset was let's pitch this group of investors in Nebraska because when we mess it up, because we will, let's go back to Silicon, like let's learn stuff and get information and then go back and like really pitch it in Silicon Valley. And meanwhile, mind you, like we're selling boxes too. And every time we sell a box, we're losing money. So, I mean, the ship is like, it's a beautiful ship, but it's like sinking, you know, and we're just laughing at it. Right. We go in and we pitch this room and they're like, this is amazing. And we're like, really? And they're like, yeah, do you want to come back and pitch at this dinner thing? We're like, sure. And we pitch again. And lo and behold, like that short trip, when we went back to Nebraska, we had options to, I think it's like 1.4 million. And we, this is how much we knew we ended up going to the investors that we liked and that we thought would help us. And we just handpicked all of them. And, you know, that had never happened. And some of the people, you know, maybe didn't want to work together or weren't sure. But like, that's where we were at, where we were like, hey, we have multiple offers. Well, we like you from here. We like you from here. You guys have never worked together. That's okay because you got warehouses. You're really nice. You're into art. I'm into art. Like, okay, let's put all these people together. Hey, guys, can we do this? And it was like they just looked at us cross-eyed. And we made it happen, and it worked out. And so it was this whole thing where we were completely ignorant to everything. And I look back on it, and it's like embarrassing. It's embarrassing to talk about, yeah, right? And 
but it was 47 days and it was a total scramble. And it was this thing that we put online and it just took off like a rocket ship. And I'm okay saying it because I also know that 18 months later was like the worst point ever. So we did the opposite where we took off like a rocket ship, but we crashed hard because frankly, like I believed my own bullshit that it was that great to make something grow that fast. And that's, that's, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm not that way anymore. So what happened when you guys experienced this crash that you're talking about? And did this happen before you guys decided to pick up and move the business and yourselves back home to Nebraska? We haven't even got to that point yet, but I would imagine yeah. that these two things are somewhat tied together. Actually, so when we received the capital, uh, my wife and I were in our 495-square-foot apartment in San Francisco with her two dogs, and we were like, the wire went through, and we were like, uh, what do we do now? And we're like laughing, like, oh, sh like, well, at least we can buy it. Like, our thought was like, well, at least we can buy a lot of cardboard, and it's cheap, Like, <laughs> which is like the crazy that we we're even thinking that simplistic, right? But we were like, well do we have to move to Nebraska? Well, no, we don't. And we we're like, well, you know, and we just kind of did like literally in 15 minutes, like a pros and cons thing. And I was like, do we move back? Do we do that? And Stephanie's like, my wife's like, yeah, I think we do. Yeah. That, that pride. And, and, and I know, you know, a lot of people, I used to hate this statement, but it was like, you know, it's true. What really we said is, yeah, it gives us the best odds for survival. Like that was what, what you know, it wasn't even about like, you know, talent or all the things you're supposed to talk about like it wasn't about oh there's investors here or whatever it was like ah, oh, we have no idea what we're doing but like you know people are nice there they'll help us out and there's warehouse space so yeah best best odds for survival that was like and i said well so do i like just like get a u-haul now yeah okay well okay i'll be back with the u-haul and like we just moved like we just did it like and it sounds so dumb and crazy when i say it but like that's also just how we operate. Like, you know, 15 minute decision, like, okay, I'm going to go get a U-Haul. I got two flat tires trying to get to U-Haul, got the truck, got back. We packed it up. We took off. We hadn't even subleased our apartment. We're like, yeah, we'll figure it out on the way back home. That's plenty of drive time to make some calls. So like that, and we went back and, you know, at the time our apartment was also where we were shipping out the Bulu boxes, quote unquote, Bulu boxes that we were losing money on. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we went back, you know, we were able to get, you know, really good looking boxes and, you know, like all this other stuff. And so, yeah, it was pretty early on. We moved back to Nebraska and, and that was the reason why. So it was it, it was good and, and, and it worked for us. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it was it was good for about 18 months, I guess. <laughs> OK, so what happened at the 18 month mark when things started to crash? Like, what did that look like? There's this term called business porn. Are you familiar with that? I am not. I don't know okay, where that good. puts me in the realm of uh, business people, <laughs> but that I'm just freely admitting I've never me. heard of this. You've never read or watched business porn. So business porn, the way that uh, somebody from an Ivy League school really high up in the startup world put it to me was, it is the stuff that people, it's like the front page of TechCrunch tech and Mashable and it's like all the super startup-y things that like people want to hear. That's business porn. Because what people don't understand is the terror, the you know, the pain, the everything that went into getting that person to that point. And and very, very rare, and I think he even said, like, I've never actually seen it, you know, does somebody 
you know, what did I, what was I just reading the other day? That was like a huge case of business porn. Oh, Robinhood, you know, the investment app. It was like the title, the title, it was like a gory title of business porn about like Robinhood co-founders each made $1 billion or something like, mm-hmm. like with a B, like mm-hmm. each made a billion dollars in, you know, three years versus some Wall Street person earning this much in this time. You know, I read through it as two startup guys went through a lot of pain that we're not going to talk about on, you know, they're valued at a billion dollars each versus these Wall Street guys took forever and they probably have a billion dollars in the bank, mm-hmm. right? But that's going to get twisted into like business porn, which is like tells you what you want to read. So I tell people like cautious about the business porn because everybody reads it and we like it and we try to do it in reality, but it doesn't actually work, which if you remove the word business, you understand the kind of analogy of business porn, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's the way somebody explained it to me. So, you know, I believe what happened with us was this whole idea of like, just making a note to self delete tech crunch unsubscribe right after the podcast. (laughs) Boom. There you go. I didn't know if that was actually a show note or not. <laughs> there you go. The like the 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 thing that happened with us is, you know, we really believed, and I think everybody around us truly believed, like just grow customers, just get customers and we'll figure out how to monetize later. So it's really like software mentality. Well, here's the deal, like that doesn't really always work with e-commerce because you're buying physical goods, cash flow matters, it's like everything. You know, if you want the margins and the logistical ability to actually even compete with Amazon, you're pretty much going to have to learn to do it all yourself and get better at it than Amazon is. And so, you know, the reality is that we're all saying, like, just grow customers and we'll figure out how to monetize later. So we did that. Right. And we had like, oh, we need to sell X amount of units. We'll raise this much. We'll become profitable. But, you know, I think really what happened is we all were believing what we were reading and saying. But when push came to shove of like. You know, where do we find X tens of millions of dollars? It was like, well, we get, what are you going to do with that money? Well, we're going to buy warehouses. What do you mean you're going to buy warehouses? Don't you want to get like a dev team and whatever? And just like that different conversation scared a lot of people. And by this time, like, you know, Birchbox hadn't happened, the billion dollar acquisition of Dollar Shave Club. Like, if anything, people were like shying away from subscription boxes, right? So here we are nobody's talking about subscription boxes. Birchbox isn't doing that great. Nobody's really been acquired. The conversation around Dollar Shave Club, which is now what everybody wants to be, they raised $237 million and they made $0 in profit, right? And it was a billion-dollar acquisition. Raised two thirty-seven, mm-hmm. bought for a billion, made $0 in profit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's a very, you know, like, that's a very rare thing where like all of the investors and everybody agree and they, you know, they built like manufacturing companies and all that stuff. And that just hadn't happened yet. So here we are, it was like, we're really early to the game and we're growing, growing, growing and uh, we're monetizing customers and we're actually, we had a kind of really cool, brilliant plan of, you know, then we sell them like our private label snacks and vitamins and supplements. And it's all based on data from the best products. So not only are we selling the boxes, we're collecting data, we're creating better products, and then we're offering those. And I have no problem saying that because it was a killer business model and it still works and somebody should do it because it works. The challenge is that, you know, we couldn't raise the capital to keep that growth going to get to X amount to that's where we are profitable. Basically, we all got gun shy and I'd say myself included. The biggest mistake that I made was 
I was talking to software investors and every, I was talking to people who were talking about apples and I really needed like a stake, right? Like I was like in two different planets. So yeah, we grew like crazy. It wasn't profitable, which was an intention. That is what we mapped out to do. We got there and nobody knew what to do with us. I didn't know how to handle it, et cetera. And at that same time, we were distracted by a potential acquisition, which that's like a whole nother podcast. <laughs> legally, I don't legally I don't know if I want to even go into that. So like there was that whole thing going on. And okay, then also, scratch that off my notes. <laughs> Can't ask yeah. Paul about acquisition talks. Yeah, like I'd I'd probably need a lawyer to dump it down for five hours before I figure <laughs> out is he saying I can or can't talk about it. So I just uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was uh, everything you wanted. Then the eleventh hour, somebody bailed. So that that's the story there. And so uh, really, what we didn't realize was there were so many subscription boxes. People talk about competition, and I think a lot of times startups think one or two or three or four or five or you know whatever. 10 or 20. But like in the subscription box world, there was literally thousands of competitors. So imagine going from, you know, being subscription box number six and basically having like a 28 cent customer acquisition cost. And you could do anything, like literally anything. I could post on bodybuilding.com. I could whatever. And just the subscribers would pour in. Right. And then fast forward to almost two years later and your cost is getting, you know, close to, you know, $7, $8, $10 and that's rising. And you think, well, God, like, damn this competition and this person, this person. And then you take back and look at the really the bigger view and you're like, oh, shit, there's like 2000 companies that are kind of like doing what we're doing. And it was just this moment in time where like it, everything became clear of we are not going to raise the amount of capital to be louder than thousands of companies. This data company that we're building that actually is really cool. makes a lot of sense. Somebody wants to buy that. We got to sell just that piece. What is it that people actually want? I don't know, but a lot of big retail companies and a lot of brands are begging us to help them with, you know, answer subscription box questions maybe that's the thing we do until we figure out what we're supposed to do. And that was like the plan was to like pivot into doing box. Actually, the plan was just do fulfillment for other companies until we figured out what we were supposed to do. And man, I'll tell you what, like as soon as we started picking up the phone to everybody that was like calling us and talking to us and saying, we could do fulfillment. And they're like, well, can you tell us like what the box would look like? We're like, oh yeah, this. And like, well, how does like the model work out? And we're like, oh, we got plenty. Okay, here's here's all the model, and we're just doing this stuff. And then it just almost overnight became clear as day that our company really where the opportunity was and what we were all good at. We were great at creating subscription boxes. You know, I was not listening to who the customer was, which was actually like large companies that wanted subscription boxes of their own. And we had a lot of great, smart people and a ton of space in Nebraska. Like it checked a different set of boxes. And so it's almost like overnight where we said, okay, we're going to stop doing this thing. We're going to have to let go a bunch of people. We're going to do private label subscription boxes for other large brands. That's what we do, like full stop. And we started doing it and we, you know, it's been a couple of years and, and it took us a while to get there. But once it was clear you know, we've been doing that for a couple of years now, and we're actually not very loud about it because the op, you know, people still keep calling us because they're asking us about Bulu Box, 
which is still around and operating. But we answer those questions and then we just go like, hey, like, do you want us to do a box for you? How do you think like there's this paradigm shift happening where you've got some of the larger e-tailers or retailers that want to get into subscription? How do you think this is going to manifest over time? Like the way that I see it and I've been operating in some capacity in the same world as you, Paul, for, for several years. Yeah. My theory on this is that in order to retain customers, you have to turn them into subscribers because yeah. so many e-tailers are competing for share of wallet in the one-time purchase space and Amazon is just going to eat everyone alive in that arena. So my theory is that unless you're building a brand that has some sort of subscription element to it where you can make a customer a loyal subscriber, it's going to be a tough go. I 100% agree. And, you know, the I've had three phone calls today and, you know, two of them were with large retail brands and a third one was with a kind of caught me out of left field. But uh, I think this 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 human wants to like buyer company i'm still kind of trying to piece it together <laughs> he, i shouldn't even say he this human this human went on this like huge kind of you know explanation of you know subscription boxes being the next or not, not i'm sorry not boxes but just subscription you know being the next bitcoin and this that and like the person i was like googling him why he's talking i'm like oh whoa like he's this guy's a big deal and you know like it's just like one of those random things that you try to avoid people and you know this guy just got through and i was like oh man i should have definitely took that call way earlier <laughs> and you know so i think you hit the nail on the head i think that subscription boxes specifically are a way to probably create a new business line for some some retailers to grow and some retailers to slow the bleed, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say like, you know, I agree with you on the Amazon thing, but I'd be a little bit more ruthless of like, some people don't know they've been eating, they've, they've already been eaten and they're just a pile of shit on the ground that's decomposing. Like they don't even know that. Like 61% of all e-commerce purchases are am on Amazon. And you're telling me, why you don't want to sell or why you don't believe in subscription. Like, I, like, pardon my language, but fuck your opinion. It doesn't matter. Like, it's the real, this is what's happening. And I like, I like my head explodes. And I'm talking like. They're also you know, leading been, product search, right? Like yeah, they've, yeah. they're about like, like better, product. People go to yeah. Amazon to search for products before they go to Google and type their product search. Oh uh, man, search. like I, Yes, like I, I get like physically upset because I'll be like these huge multi-billion-dollar publicly traded companies, and in the room with C-suite, and I, and I play nice and I tone it down a little bit. And in the room, it's just like, what are you talking about, man? It's a the Allen Iverson clip where he's like, "You're talking about practice. I'm talking about the game. I'm talking <laughs> about like, what are we doing? You're talking about practice. I'm talking about the game." And I'm like, what I'm saying is like. Like I'm talking about Amazon. Like you're talking about, should we sell online? What are you talking? What world are you from? Right? And it's 2018, and it's just kind of this like, oh man, you just got to shrug and be like, you're you're all fucked. Like I don't know what to tell you. Like if you know that's the the case, like I you know I don't know what to say. And so like, but it's okay because like most people get there, and kind of the thing is is like, okay, like who in this room? you know, has Amazon prime or whatever. And, and everybody in the room raises their hand and, and you can see people, people actually know the answer. It's just a matter of them coming to grips with it. And also I think I need to add this disclaimer. Like there's probably 
clients or potential clients or other clients that want to like contact me and they're like, they just heard that rant about it. Like, don't worry. It's not you. It's everybody. Like, you know, like, like they're probably listening or whatever going like, Oh crap. Like that's our company or whatever. And I'm like, it's, I get so fired up because it is, it is every single company that's a big, large retail entity. But the cool thing is, is that if they get over that and they kind of learn how to navigate Amazon, which we help with, that's not what we do, but like we help with that and we put them in touch with the right people. If they execute a subscription box properly, that's what we do. And we use their strengths and our strengths. Like it is so cool to see how quickly things can turn around. So besides the subscription as a way to hedge, right? Everybody in the online shopping world from a, the consumer standpoint is sort of used to this idea now of Amazon like, like an Amazon like experience. So Amazon yes. speed with yep. let's say Zappos, like, customer, okay, Zappos service. customer service. <laughs> yeah. So that combination is what everyone expects from every e-tailer now. Yeah. It's funny how like we, we all like think that way. I mean, you, like I was like, you know, I knew what you're going to say before I say it because we all naturally think that way. Right. Yeah. So besides the subscription as a hedge, what else do you think companies could do to shelter themselves from that lethal combination of customer expectation? Really, your options are you need to learn how to leverage Amazon to get to your goals. It's possible. But if your goals are just grow faster, bigger, et cetera, and Amazon takes away from that, you're just not thinking about it in the right way. And I use this example with our clients. Okay, how much are you spending per product on marketing for that product? And they'll say, you know, X amount of dollars. I go, okay, well, what if that's just what you give Amazon and you just get rid of marketing? And they're like, we never get rid of marketing. I'm like, well, yeah, but like, you know, have you tried it? Have you put it on Amazon? Maybe that product will do so well, you don't actually need to do marketing for it. And they're like, wait, is that a thing? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but like, that's, you got to try to find out. Right. And it's actually, you know, I, I have people and and entities that I know that have actually been able to like reduce marketing spend because Amazon brings so much to the table. Right. And I think people fail to understand that a rising tide raises all boats. And, a, you know, I actually haven't heard of a story where like somebody sells on Amazon and it hurts something else like that currently is like a misperception. Maybe like craft coffee or something like blue bottle would not sell on Amazon or maybe I don't know. Could be. Maybe yeah, but I, I don't even. Know. Yeah. But and it's I'm like just thinking thing, like some hipster coffee brand might not work on Amazon. It could be. And also like a lot of times people like because they don't want to buy blue bottle anywhere, but you know, whatever, because of something still, you and I know better when you pull out your pocket and your little thing is buzzing and you can two button click Amazon pay and get your blue bottle tomorrow. You might think twice about taking those three extra steps because that's how humans are. Right. And my answer to blue bottle or, you know, whatever example is, well, do you know that? Is that truth? Or is that, you know, what you're telling yourself? Okay, well, like, let's just try it. Like, let's see what happens when you sell on Amazon. You can always turn back, right? And then the other option is, you know, like the jet.com, the Walmart, Google, kind of where that is going. And it's like, well, you better like go compete with them. So it's like, you know, right now you got to either either got to get on the team or you got to go build a better team that will beat them, you know? And, And that's right now just what, you know, totally my opinion in the e-commerce world, but I think there's a lot of facts and statistics to back that. But you know what? If somebody is just 
bound and determined to just sell their product on their own website or on Etsy, like go for it. Like that's fine. Like we'll, you know, somebody else will fill that slot on Amazon and not knowing how you will perform when you sell your product in multiple places is worse than knowing that it worked or it didn't work. And I think that's really the bottom line is you don't know unless you try. Yep. And also this point about rising costs of acquisition as it relates to increase cost per oh click or CPM rates uh. and all of that that's happening in the world of media buying. Just on Facebook, for example, where you mentioned you started at 28 cents and then all of a sudden that goes to 10 bucks within two years. Cost of acquisition for customers online is going up and up and up. So there is more of an argument to test something different. Exactly, exactly. And if you just pay attention to the pixels and you just watch where people are coming and going, like if you sell anything online, like you're watching them go back and forth from Amazon and compare prices, like they're coming and going to Amazon already, you know, like you might as well, like, you know, and people think, well, I'll lower my price or I'll do this thing or whatever. But like right now, and I'm again, like, I'm not saying forever, but just like right now, like, you know, okay, beat them on price, but still people are, you know, so conditioned to click and buy on Amazon and get it next day. Like they just got such a leg up on everybody and they're not, there's no sign of slowing down. And so like, you know, don't fool yourself into thinking you're going to be the one that outsmarts Amazon. But if you do think you are, you better put everything you have are people around you money everything at that fight because that's what it's going to take to you know take a shot at bezos yeah i think the richest man in the world right now yeah and and arguably the the most visionary entrepreneur uh in history i know that we'll get a lot of tomatoes thrown at us for that potential oh uh, yeah (laughs) by the way like i don't like saying all of those things (laughs) you know like i was the guy that was like oh no like screw amazon and then you know like i did i'm not like geeked up to say that i'm just saying like uh, i i I fought the battle and I said, this is dumb. Like we're killing ourselves. Let's, let's leverage it. Yeah. Highly recommend the book too, for listeners that haven't read it, the everything store just finished reading that very, very awesome story on. I'm going to read that couple last questions and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, man. Cool. You are doing a lot of work building on Shopify as a platform. And, you know, as a Canadian, very proud to say Shopify is a Canadian company. All those American listeners that think that it isn't, it is. You developed a relationship with Shopify's founder, Toby Lutke, pretty early on. I'm curious to know how you guys met and how you developed uh, that relationship. With Toby, the, the thing was early on, my wife and I jumped on Shopify, I think it was 2011 or 2012. I don't know. Like It was basically... I was looking at everything, like Volusion, Big Commerce, you know, everything, and it was a lot of people were like, oh, Shopify could be something. And I think it clicked. I'm not sure if it was in the beginning or whenever, but this whole idea or somebody posted or somebody said something online and it just stuck with me of like Shopify wants to be the cell phone and the apps are like what they're going to allow people to do. And it's going to be like for everyday use for people or like whatever. And my wife and I started tinkering with it and we're like, whoa, this is so simple. Like, this is amazing. Little did we know how much like the servers would be an issue in the beginning or the the Heroku or some servers. Yeah, it's crazy. And so we built this thing and I don't want to give away too much because I could probably, you know, get them in trouble. But uh, it was one of these things where like we would, we thought Shopify would, I don't know how big they were, but like, you know, 
we would, I would just tell my team, well, I, there was four of us. I would just say to the other three people, like, I don't know, just like pick up the phone and call Shopify. And so like we're calling them and we don't know how to do things. And they're like, oh, well, um, Toby says like this thing called Chargerify for recurring subscriptions are coming. And we're like, you know, who's Toby? Is he in the head of customer service? But, <laughs> so like, and, you know, we're just constantly like barraging them. Like, why doesn't this work? Whatever. And I can neither confirm nor deny that some of the people at Shopify were like, well, like what you can do is like, you know, there's this company in India and they can kind of like hack our system and build this thing that you need. And I'm like, what? Did they just encourage us to like, you know, like manipulate or whatever? And I thought that was pretty cool of them, you know, and they were just so honest and transparent of like what they were doing and what they were trying to do. And, you know, I didn't realize how special it was at the time. And I think a lot of it kind of rubbed off on our team because it was honestly in the early days, it was like the only other kind of start. I really don't even know when Shopify started, but it was like, probably the only other kind of startup-y company that we were really talking to because we were just trying to figure – we had no developers. We were just like four people. There's like a salesperson, me, my wife, who's you know mostly graphic design, and a finance guy. And like we're all huddled around a computer trying to figure out how to like you know do this one weird thing on, on Shopify. And so I, I don't know. Just call them. Like just – ask them to build it. And that's another like thing that I learned is if you bother a software company enough, they might let you in on like beta tests or they might just build something for you to make you go away. <laughs> <laughs> like, like truly, or just say, I'm not happy with it. Give it to me for free. And they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. So Shopify was like, they were just super cool in the beginning. And actually they've always been really cool. And there came this point in time where we needed something like rewards points and different sorts of subscriptions and they just weren't there and i think after just absurd amount of time just like just like calling and whatever and i started tweeting i remember i started tweeting or dming toby and i was like oh crap that guy that we've been talking to for like a year or two he's actually the ceo and you know back and forth emails and and with him and and we had a a, a conversation and you know, they were, he and his team were just really honest, like, Hey, Paul, like we don't have this thing. Now that I think back, they probably just wanted me to go away. So they like probably just released me out of all the software and everything, but they actually helped move a lot of our things from Shopify to a platform called Magento and Magento just had what we needed. It was a totally different beast. And, you know, arguably a Shopify competitor. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, like people are probably cringing right now at either Shopify or Magento and, mm -hmm. you know, like it just had what we needed and, and it was a totally different animal that we had to tame and, you know, it was frustrating. And, and I definitely like had to take a step back because I didn't have the skill set or understanding to like work on Magento. We had to get certified Magento programmers. So, you know, at the time it was what we needed and it worked. And then now I'm like really happy to say, and there's a guy named uh, Robbie Deeks that he was working at Shopify. He's a Canadian. Also, there's a weird thing I think about Midwesterners and Canadians. We're kind of a little bit cut from the same cloth. We apologize a lot. We're polite. We're genuinely concerned with each other and the weather and sports. Um, <laughs> you know, we are not exchanging alma maters. Um, you guys yes. are proud of e-commerce. We are proud of, you know, farming and e-commerce. And people sometimes turn their nose up. By the way, hats off to Canada and your e-commerce, like just everything, like, you guys are like the capital for like e-commerce. And I've always thought like, man, the U.S. is like missing the boat on e-commerce. And, you know, I think there was a little like... It's so funny. It's a know. bit of a trade secret, though. 
it's, yeah, not, well, it's not fully I'm up outing. There. I'm outing it, right? But there's a little bit of a, like, you know, in the Valley and on the East Coast, like, when I talk about e-commerce, it's like people turn their nose up at me. I'm like, wait, what? Wait, we make money. Oh, and I, I will say things like, oh, I, I'm sorry. Like, we, we make real money. So I don't know what you do, but, you know. So hats off to Canada because I feel like you guys, like, you know, understand that and, and whatever. So that that's super cool. But, yeah, at the end of the day, like, you know, I just always remembered how Shopify did right by us forever. And then a, a sales rep came to us and kind of said, hey, you know, can I tell you more about Shopify? And we're like, yeah, yeah, we've been that. And he's like, well, it's been two years. We're a little bit different now. And, you know, he did the effort and got us, you know, interested. They helped us transition everything back to Shopify. And a lot of times when we're building, now depending on the client need, you know, but most, a lot of the times we're like building websites on Shopify for our partners. And I think Shopify, a lot of people kind of have it mentally as like this, you know, templated patty cake website. Right. But it's like not that at all. Like it is unbelievably robust. Shopify pro is great. And then Used honestly, to be. like now, now they're so much better. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So they, they they were pinned as, you know, it used to be this quick, simple, fast thing. And what people, that's how I think a lot of people remember them. But like, if you really spend time on the platform or look at Shopify Pro or, you know, work with their team, because they can kind of do and build anything for you, it is kind of mind blowing what they can do. And like, you know, it's, it's why probably, I think 90% of the subscription boxes we make, we build it on Shopify. It's also incredibly easy to work with a client on it. And no, I don't get paid by Shopify at all. Nor do I, but but I'm making a note to approach them to be a podcast sponsor. Yeah, Because like, well, we're, this... we're giving them a lot of airtime here. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, use special code, uh, make me rich uh, <laughs> to, to you know, get $20 off. And the one the one website that I'm really pumped about is uh, Discovery Channel. We worked with them. We created uh, the SharkWeekBox.com, and we were able to like put everything together and get it operating and running and tie it to systems and get it approved by Discovery Channel. That's super hard, and they're you know a big media company that doesn't know it. And I think we did everything in like less than five days, and that's insane. And you know we would have missed the opportunity to do a project with Shark Week, but because we got that thing up and essentially used the website to like close the deal, we're like, hey, it's already done and built, you know, and it works. And so you just don't say no. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how we're working with clients. So huge, huge fan of Shopify and it's a great product. And uh, yeah, probably people should buy the stock too, because that thing's going nuts for them too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question, tying this back all the way to the beginning and sorry, we've, we've been hanging out for a while. So apologize. Man, for going it's all time. good. No, don't. We're, we're good. The stuff around self-awareness. And I really want to wrap up on this note because it, I think the, the, points that you brought up are so important the few things that you mentioned the six people that you wanted to hang around to levy up the mentoring from a distance uh, reading people's autobiographies etc but the other thing that you mentioned around working backward and understanding how you want your story to end i want to ask you if you're comfortable sharing it how do you want your story to end yeah I used to have like a really big kind of, you know, heavy idea for that. And, you know, I think I've had two really close 
friends die one when I was like in grade school and one when I was in college and they were they were really close like close close friends and as tragic as that is I think the gift that it's given me is like perspective right and and you know like I think if you just kind of pull out of air you kind of sit and think about yourself and how you want your story to end I think you're going to get the wrong answer on my deathbed I want a couple of people to show up and I can feel like the, the warmth and the love. I know that sounds fucking corny and I would laugh at myself if I said that like, you know, a couple of years ago, but it's the truth because you can, you can kind of like feel that. Right. And I want to look into their eyes and I just want like people to be there and go like, good job. You can go. We'll take it from here. And like, that's, that's it. And, and I hope, you know, I will be able to leave something or, you know, teach something. It might be money, it might be knowledge, it might be whatever, but it's kind of like the, through all of this, the things that I picked up, I have the ability before I go to give those tools to a few people and they just say, thank you for these tools. We're going to use them and we'll pass them on. Don't worry. Like we'll take it from here. Where can people find out more about you, Paul, more about Bulu and everything you guys are doing? PaulJarrett.com, P-A-U-L-J-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. I could say something cool like, oh, check out my Twitter, like check out whatever. But I think the the website is uh, super simple and there's a video or two on there that I think is pretty strong and you know, has links to social or whatever. And, and I'd say like, man, you know, human woman, <laughs> I'm trying to get a human, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Like I might not get back fast, but uh, I usually get back to everything. And you know, there's, there's people out here that, uh, you know, want to help. And if you got an e-commerce question or a startup question or whatever, I might not get back, back fast, but you know, I mark stuff and I usually get back to it. And, uh, I, I like to help because I didn't know where to go when I needed help. And so I think that's a good thing that, uh, we should do for others. It's an amazing place to stop. Paul, thank you, man. Really appreciate you coming on. Congratulations on everything so far. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. And thank you, any and everybody, if you've uh, made it this far. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate you. All right. Take it easy, man. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business, or even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O W N R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. 
welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Electric acid.